Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We have two guests today. Uh, we have Tom Morris. He's the author of Philosophy for Dummies and 30 other books. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Notre Dame. He now heads the Morris Institute for Human Values and is an active business speaker. Gregory Basham is the author of the philosophy book and illustrated history of philosophy and 10 other books. He was a professor of philosophy at King's College. And Tom and Gregory have both collaborated together to create a new book called Stoicism for Dummies, available next week on January 11th. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, and we know as Alan and I were talking, you know, oh, oh, there we go. There we go. Just I was just about to mention it. Yeah, as Alan and I were talking, we were saying that, first of all, because we love Stoicism and obviously because we love Tom, we thought the both of you would be the perfect guest for our 200th episode. So not only have we covered Stoicism, I don't even know, God knows how many times already, but like Tom now, man, you are now literally at the top of our guest list, man. You are a four-time guest. That's amazing, you guys. Can I put, I, I got to get that on my bio real quick on my website. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so- and as we start, we always we yeah. often start with a passage from the book. So in this case, I'm going to the chapter on death, and I will start with what's called the impossibility of harm argument. The impossibility of harm argument has been even more widely discussed and has fascinated people ever since it first appeared. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that it's one of the most interesting and clever short arguments ever invented. Here's one way of presenting it. Number one, at any time when you exist, your death does not exist. Number two, what does not exist cannot harm you. Number three, at any time when your death exists, you do not exist. Number four, what does not exist cannot be harmed. So, number five, it is impossible for death to harm you. Number six, it makes sense to fear only things that can harm you. So, number seven, it makes no sense to fear death. I love that. Yeah, and so <laughs> what, what's so cool about this is it, you can kind of see both the uh, the sort of beauty and also there's an in, implicit, uh, not necessarily a criticism, but you can make a criticism about it, is that on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, you can see how in some ways man's faculty or you know human faculty can essentially help us overcome some of our deepest fears but on the other hand we can make the case and say well it sounds a little bit like sophistry right because i mean yeah everybody fears death you know so tom i'm gonna actually start with you um so how do you then make sense of it because on the one hand for stoicism it's often highly criticized and saying well it's just a bunch of mental gymnastics as cbt you know which i practice is often criticized as being too but on the other hand there's a sense of beauty in it that says but yes we can overcome yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, that argument's the kind of thing that in philosophy 101, back in the day, you'd see the professor put up on the board and everybody in the class would like be like Bill and Ted, like, dude, really? <laughs> it's like, have I seen a magician pull a rabbit out of a hat all of a sudden here? What's going on with this? Because on the surface, it seems so convincing, right? It's almost like... Um, Epicurus's other argument, the symmetry argument, you know, before your 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 birth, you didn't exist. That doesn't bother you. After your death, you won't exist. Why should that bother you? It's the same thing. You know, it's a, it's absolutely symmetrical. And when you hear stuff like this, you go, man, we are clever beings, we humans, <laughs> especially the ones that become philosophers. You know, they put on the toga and come up with stuff like this all the time. But you just say to yourself, wait, there's got to be more to it than that. Right. Because I'm I'm not facing that period of time before my birth, but I'm facing that period of time after my death. And the more you start digging into it, the more you see, look, okay, I get what, what's being said here, but there's got to be more to it. And that's why it's funny. You choose to read from probably the longest chapter in the book. And in a sense, the, the most complicated chapter in the book, because the Stoics didn't just think that argument alone is going to do the job. You know, they right. gave us all kinds of arguments, right? And yet it's ultimately 
when we get to Marcus and when we get to Seneca, that we start to see maybe it's not an argument they're relying on in the end. Maybe it's they want to habituate our thinking in a different direction. It's almost as if all these mind games they play, and you're right, a lot of people say Stoicism is just this bag of tricks of mind games, you know. Mm. But the longer you live, the more you realize, hey, life is an inner game. You got to play the wisdom game or you can't play any other game well. And you learn these little tricks and techniques not to deceive yourself, but to shed things that are deceiving you, to shed illusions that are deceiving you. And so when Marcus and Seneca sort of leave behind clever arguments and start saying stuff like, look, what good is worrying going to do you about death, right? I mean, we typically worry about things that we can do something about. I'm worried about my wife's cards in the shop right now. Mm -hmm. We're making backup plans about what we're going to do about that. But really, what, what role does worrying about death play in your life. I mean, fearing it, worrying about it, it's going to happen. So why don't we calm down a little bit about it and try to think about it differently? So I see the Stoics not so much in the end as relying on one argument, but on trying to suggest different, more practical ways of thinking about the big stuff in life. That's the way I look at it, at least. No, for sure. I mean, it's unavoidable right? I yeah. mean, specifically death, actually, right? And if it's unavoidable, and you, there are, only th there are things that you can control and things that you cannot control, right? And the things that you can avoid are maybe things that are uh, harmful to you, right? Yeah. But if you can't avoid something like death, which, you know, uh, you don't know whether it causes har you harm or not, right. you might as well not necessarily even give any thought or attention to it because it's going to distract from other resource, other mental resources you could use to, I don't know, maybe deal with the present or plan for the future yeah. and deal with the uh, daily life. Right. Yeah. And then, so, and then so Greg, how would you address the criticisms against stoicism, right? Going back to the concept of maybe it being a form of mental gymnastics. Well, it's a lot more than a lot more than that. Uh, you know, ancient stoicism was a whole big uh, complex theoretical system and uh it's it's uh it's kind of mutated uh recently in uh in, in modern stoicism and i think uh modern stoicism is is somewhat more open to that charge of being just mental gymnastics it's, it's a common criticism that they're just they, they've reduced stoicism to just a a, a bunch of life hacks you know for mm -hmm. coping skills essentially but uh, ancient Stoicism was really much more than that. It, yeah. was, it was a whole, a whole uh, integrated, comprehensive uh, worldview. Yeah, and it hangs together in, in really interesting ways. And so when we want to evaluate the life hack side, and yeah, that's a side of it, right? I mean, and, and, and it's not something that I want to criticize because so heavily, because look, to look at philosophy as a way of life, to look at philosophy as practical, anybody who wants to do that is kind of returning to its ancient roots. And like Greg said, the, the fruit on the tree comes from deep roots. They're deep roots of theory. 
but these deep roots produce fruit and to want to pick that fruit off the tree and take advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a, in a time when so many people in the sciences are saying, ah, forget philosophy. And so many college administrators are saying, ah, forget the philosophy department. Here are guys who are saying, look, there's a practical side to what we do. There's a very practical side. And, and you can use some of these ideas right away. And then Greg and I come along and especially Greg, he wants to emphasize in the book, Look, these deep theoretical roots that we can't forget about. We've got to look at them. We've got to take them seriously. Maybe we'll end up saying of some of them, ah, uh, that doesn't sound like a modern worldview that we can accept. But maybe we'll say of other of their ideas, okay, this is adaptable to our time. So we will lead people through a real journey of evaluation and appropriation that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And what I love about it is, again, going back to CBT, that's because I much of what I do for a living is that when people criticize CBT, they often say, well, it's just a positive spin on things. So you can't. So there's this concept of depressive realism, which I, I, I tend to have my uh, significant issues with and I tend to challenge frequently. Some people will say I don't have a deep understanding of it, which I disagree. But fine, I, I can I can see where they're coming from. So with depressive realism, there's the sense that, well, all life is suffering. Right. They'll say something like, well, you know, the Buddha said something like that, even though that's a misunderstanding of it. And so because all life is suffering because various people have, uh, I would say probably the vast majority of people have some form of depression and anxiety. Everything that we're doing is just a way of talking ourselves out of it. But then when you go into CBT and just obviously the connection here with stoicism is that when you think about these arguments, it's not that they're telling you don't feel these things. It's not that they're saying don't feel sad, uh, don't feel scared, don't even get angry. I also think that's a misunderstanding of stoicism. What it's saying is that because there's a part of you that's a little bit more rational that's saying, hey, maybe this is not the most important thing in the world. Maybe death is not the scariest thing in the world. Uh, maybe this person who wronged you isn't like the biggest piece of shit in the world. You know, all of these kind of mental conceptions that we have of what we think the world is. Maybe if that's not the case, it's not so much that you shouldn't feel these feelings is that maybe you can help reduce them by a little bit of reason. And here's the thing. I mean, the, the reduction comes from maybe this core idea that we're under a lot of delusions, right? I mean, yeah. if, if, for example, you are angered by someone, are, did they truly do something that um, requires you to be angry? Did they really intend to necessarily uh, hurt you or intend to create this feeling in you? Mm -hmm. um, are you perhaps looking at it correctly or not? Even uh. if they were intending to hurt you, uh, mm -hmm. what does does it benefit you to then allow yourself to have that reaction? Could it then keep you from moving forward with your own day or things that you need to focus on? It does it. Yeah. Like you can start to ask these questions and in actually logically sort of probing uh, whatever your thoughts or beliefs are at that moment in time, you, know, you can actually, yeah, have a better understanding of how to uh, live life more practically. Yeah, Alan, that's you wisely said, man. Uh, the Stoics are always bringing me back to the question about any emotion, about any thought, about any action, about anything. How does this function in my life? Is this helping me to be a more virtuous person, a stronger person, a more independent person who can do good in the world? Or is this detracting from that, right? So a particular emotion, it's not like they're doing skeet shooting with emotions. You know, give me anger, boom, shoot it out of the air. Give me sadness, boom, there it goes. Yeah. They're just saying, wait a minute, how is this functioning for you? Let's examine that, right? It's what I call the functionality principle. And geez, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And to say to people, oh, it's toxic positivity, or you guys aren't taking seriously the suffering of the world. No, no, no. We're just asking, how is this serving you? You know, how is it functioning in your life? I think that makes a lot of sense. 
No, I love that. Yeah, and actually, um, that could connect to asking about uh, what is the sort of st the Stoic principle of uh, radical acceptance, and and how can that help us? And if it's okay, can we actually get Greg to answer first? Yeah, sure. I was going to toss this to Greg, but oh, cool. he's, he's the master. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a, a a very important idea in Stoicism: the idea of of, uh, of radical acceptance, and, and that's a term that we coined. Uh, it, the, the kind of acceptance that the that the Stoics recommended is is radical in the sense that it goes well beyond uh, you know what most of us would would, would think uh, is appropriate in some context. It's radical because, as Epictetus explains, uh, we should we should not uh, not merely kind of grudgingly accept uh, whatever happens to us in this life, uh, all all the negativities that can happen to us. Uh, we should uh, cheerfully and and gratefully and even even joyfully uh, welcome them, uh, and, and that all had a religious root uh, in, in Stoic thought, because uh, they were big believers in in divine providence. Everything uh, is is, uh, is is the will of of, uh, of, of God, uh, to use that term, uh, and uh, whatever happens happens for the best, whether we can see that or not. And so uh, with that kind of mindset, uh, you should simply accept whatever happens uh, cheerfully and, in fact, gratefully. Yeah. And then now going to Tom, right? So now we're going into the preferred and the dispreferred. So now there's this concept, okay, there's this whole world that we can't really control, but there's a little slice of it that we actually can. Okay. So why does that matter and how does that relate to our well-being? What the, you know, it's funny because uh, there's a sense in which Epictetus is our poster boy here, right? who was a slave and now he's free. And so he says to everybody, guess what, guys, you're all slaves too. Everybody's enslaved to something. A lot of you guys are enslaved to a lot of stuff. I want to be your liberator. I want you to be free like me, you know? And so he, he thinks that we're worried about all this stuff in the world. Uh, uh, what's my reputation in the world? What's my status? Do people like me? Am I making enough money to cover my expenses? What's How's my health, you know, at, at my age? How, how's my dog's health, you know? We're worried about all this stuff, and we're chasing all this stuff, and we're fearing all this stuff. And, and so Epictetus just says, guys, let me free you from a lot of this. You know, and so so the Stoics are kind of across a wide array of attitudes about stuff in the world other than virtue and vice. You know, virtue is the true good and vice is the true evil. And don't call anything else good or bad. A lot of the Stoics want to say, you know, just concentrate on that inner stuff and just take it or leave it with the other stuff. You know, um, acceptance. Yeah. Try to accept it as much as, as, as you possibly can, because guess what? The opposite. What good is that going to do? You know, again, back to the functionality thing. But. But the Stoics disagreed amongst themselves a little bit on how about things in the world, right? Because Aristotle thought that virtue is really important, but so some other stuff too. It it pays to have some coin on hand, you know, if you want to go out with friends and do some right. and, and give and give to a philanthropy, you know. And it it, it uh, there are other things that can matter, but if if only virtue is good and only vice is bad, well, that stuff can't be good or bad. So what is it? So they they. Some of the Stoics invent, invent this category of, uh, okay, this stuff is basically indifferent, but there's some of it that's preferred, and there's others that's dispreferred, okay, on account of what? Well, what does nature really want for us, right? Uh, they were always going back, the Stoics, from, from Zeno on, what's natural? 
you know, they follow the cynics in this a little bit. What's natural? Uh, what's in accordance with nature? And so they say, well, nature wants us to survive. So it's good that we have food and shelter. Oh, I shouldn't say good, preferred. Hmm. It's preferred that we have good uh, food and shelter. Well, there's some other things that are preferred. So they can start making a list. Uh, community is good. Uh, we're, we're sociable beings. The Stoics have a big emphasis on community and sociability. And so friendliness toward others, you know, and, 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 and having a good community around you. Well, that's a preferred thing. You know, a healthy community is a preferred thing. And so then they start making this list of the preferred things and the dispreferred. And their attitude is it makes sense to seek the preferred things and to seek to avoid the dispreferred things. But again, don't get so worked up about it as if you're dealing with absolute goods and evils. Just realize you can hold hold on to this stuff, but not really tightly. You can pursue this stuff, but don't wear yourself out and, and get a monomaniacal focus. We start the book, uh, Greg and I start the book in the introduction saying like half of wisdom is about knowing what to embrace and what to release, right? So That's many right. of us are holding on to things we should let go of, or we're letting go of things we should hold on to. And so the Stoics are about trying to finesse that, you know, help us finesse it in our lives, I think. Yeah, so I think a difficult question here would be okay. So if there's if it's difficult to know what is and isn't objective truth, objective good, bad, etc., uh, how do we respond to the fact that okay, let's say if somebody important to you dies, I mean naturally you're going to be incredibly upset. Some people take a longer time, let's say, than others to get over grief. But then here's the Stoic saying in some ways, and I'm going to caricature this for a reason. Here's the Stoic saying, well, I mean, listen, everybody dies. You should have known that this is what life was going to be like. Why don't you get over it, right? So that's often the understanding, at least you know the uh, the coarse understanding of what Stoicism is supposed to be. So uh, I'm going to actually pitch this question to Greg. So Greg, when somebody, when you are dealing with a death, which I would say most people would say, well, doesn't that seem inherently bad? How would the Stoics address that? Well, I think they, they disagreed among themselves sometimes. Uh, Seneca, for example, uh, it, it says quite quite clearly that uh, some amount of grief is just just part of human nature. It's, it's, it's unavoidable. You know, we can try and deny it, try and suppress it, but the fact is that uh, you're, you're going to have those those feelings. Uh, Epictetus is a little bit hard, harder core on that. He, he tells a story about uh, uh, one of the Zeno Zeno's teachers, a guy named Stilpo, mm -hmm. uh, whose entire family was wiped out by a by a tyrant. And the tyrant uh, asked Stilpo, though, you know, uh, where's where's your vaunted stoic tranquility now? Mm -hmm. And Stilpo replied. I have all my goods with me, uh, and that, that that was held up as, as kind of a, a model stoic response. Yes, you're going to have these feelings, uh, but you should try and return to a, a kind of mental balance, a mental equilibrium, as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. Tom, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I like that. I mean, in in uh, my earlier book, uh, a long time ago, back when we were all young, <laughs> called The Stoic Art of Living. Uh, when I first sort of grappled with the Stoics back in the 90s, I remember taking on Epictetus about, about this and saying, look, you know, there's a certain extent to which grief is an emotion and attitude that honors the worth of the person you've lost. And unless you can express that honor of that person's worth, there's something wrong with you, basically. You, and, and, and the Stoics themselves do say, look, I don't want to turn you guys into statues, you know, stone statues. We're not talking about emotional anesthesia here. Right. 
So I, I think Seneca really has some insight, you know, and, and he's kind of the least lauded of the Stoics these days. People worry about his position in Nero's uh, 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 palace and, and, and his wealth and all this other stuff. But often he's the voice of reason. And, and he'll come back and he'll say, grief is appropriate, but it's almost like what Aristotle says about anger, right? How much, to what point, uh, for how long, uh, in, in what measure. Um, and, 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 and so Seneca wants us to ask those questions again, function. So he doesn't want us to be cold as ice about this. You know, when you, it's, it's this, it's this, when you kiss your son, say to yourself, you could die tomorrow, you know, uh, hmm, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a little on the rough side. And Epictetus is a little bit the tough love guy and people don't know if he's joking or not, because he is a guy who, who, who jokes around almost the Zen master hitting you in the side of the head thing, right? Yeah. Sometimes Epictetus, you don't know whether to take him seriously or not. Is he just trying to jerk people out of complacency and certain emotions they, they feel, they're feeling customarily that are getting in their own way? Is he just trying to jerk you up and, and make you think about this? Or does he really mean this seriously? So um, one of the great things about our partnership in this book is that, that Greg's really good on the historical side of things, of digging through the roots of these guys, why they viewed these things the way they did. And that helps us to know, look, it's not a take it or leave it thing with stoicism. It's not a one size fits all. It's like, let's investigate this and see what we can learn from these guys that will help us with what we're going through. Hmm. Yeah. And, and particularly with Epictetus, I mean, uh, he was a slave, right? Uh, he did become, and then, he went through such extreme conditions, and I feel like the the reason why his philosophy could be looked at as a little bit, um, I don't know, uh, you could say uh, somewhat strict, but not. I wouldn't yeah. even give it that term exactly. It yeah. might be because of that, I, I imagine, because he he had to go through really extreme situations in order to sort of uh, be able to find that freedom from external situations yeah. right yeah. Yeah. yeah uh but that's something actually i really uh connect with and i feel like a lot of people could connect with in terms mm -hmm. of how he achieved that because th the idea is if for example um you know you're going through suffering and you're you're thinking about uh how much pain you're going through or what happened to you who did this to you who did that to you that mm -hmm. that sort of thing um you cannot um be at peace you cannot have uh ataraxia right you cannot experience that that feeling of tranquility within and um what's interesting to me is uh he found a way to sort of be essentially present to the moment as opposed to be in his thoughts or beliefs uh about his situation and and in, in that he found freedom from his external situation and why is that something like somebody like myself or no, I'm sorry, anybody would actually benefit from, I should say, um, yeah. is because, yeah, we all go through things every day, lots of things that maybe we, we ruminate on, uh, maybe uh, just personal relationships, like something bad happened that's just like kind of taking over your entire mental process. But yeah. uh, if you could sort of look at how someone like Epictetus uh, looked at um, that sort of situation, and you, you actually find something that resonates with that, you could find freedom for yourself also from your external situation, and then yeah. really get to see, you know, what someone like him was, was talking about in his philosophy. Yeah. You know, yeah, I'm often coming across this, um, I'm coming back to a distinction about the way we view qualities like tranquility, inner right. peace. Um, 
you can have an absolutist conception of that, which sometimes it sounds like Epictetus is, is pushing this, right? He wants us to be absolutely peaceful, nothing to disturb it at all. The surface of a pond on a windless day, there's not a ripple in your inner spirit, right? Mm -hmm. but, but there's another way of viewing tranquility where it's aspirational, and you get it till you finally work hard and get to the point where it's your default setting. But it's not that you're never going to be perturbed. You're never going to have that shaken up, but that it'll be for a lesser time than other people, and you'll return to the default setting. So so that's the way I, it's sort of an aspirational thing is the way I look at it to make sense of sometimes when it seems to Epictetus goes to extremes and is being absolutist about things. I, I say to myself, okay, I get what he's doing. He's presenting an ideal, but how many ideals do we really attain? I mean, the Stoics themselves said, you know, who attains the ideal? The sage. Guess how many of them there are? Are, one every 500 years, you know, so don't feel bad if you're not living up to the strictest versions of Stoicism. Let us be aspirational for you and just give you some new default settings so that you're not expected to be perfect in this and absolutely constant in this. But when you are disturbed by anger or sadness or irritation or grief, you return to the default setting a lot quicker than most people do and you'll regain, re regain your strength. And what's also so interesting is when we, even though they think of uh, good and bad in terms of preferred and dispreferred, they do that as opposed to how well in the world, as opposed to how they actually see character. So for them, there is such a thing as char as good character. There is such a thing as virtue. So, uh, Greg, I want to pitch this to you first. So why is virtue so important to them? And why is it that for them, good character seems to be the ultimate way of being or let's say uh, cultivating good character? I don't want to say exactly good character, but cultivating it. Why is that for them the sort of what, you know, the layperson would say is the meaning of life? Well, they're, they're really drawing on Socrates there, as, as they do in so many different aspects of their, their philosophy. Socrates, uh, in various places, seems to suggest that, that virtue is, the, is the, only, the only truly good thing uh, in, 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 in the world. Uh, and so, uh, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Well, yeah. you know, the, the Socratic... Greg is right. The Socratic a source of these views as virtue is the only good, vice is the only evil. Uh, I, I want to toss it back to Greg in a second, but I, I just want to put this in that they often ask themselves about something. Is it a virtue like courage, honesty? Is it a virtue? Well, the way you ask yourself that is, are there any circumstances in which it could be a bad thing for me to have this, like to be courageous, right? Uh, so character, virtuous character itself. Is, is there any situation in which it could be bad? to have a virtuous character, that it would make you a worse person to be seeking virtue? And they said, no. And so it's like, it's not just a conditional good. It's an absolute good. Mm -hmm. Toss it back to you, Greg. Yeah, so on virtue. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so, uh, so they believe that uh, what, what's good is ultimately what's beneficial. They, they equated what's good with what's beneficial. Uh, and if something is, is truly good, it must be unconditionally beneficial. And uh, there really aren't very many things you can think of in this world that are unconditionally beneficial, except uh, moral excellence. At least that was, that was Socrates' view. Uh, we, we always become better. We always uh, uh, are able to achieve our, our, our ideal well-being by, uh, by becoming as virtuous as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you try to name outer things, money, power, fame, status, as uh, unalloyed goods, you can always do a quick story where 
it's 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 fame that took that guy down. I mean, how mm. many how many athletes, how many musicians, how many uh, people of uh, business people do we know? It's it's money that took him down. It's fame that took him down. It's uh, and it's the power that corrupted this guy. Um, but character, good character. Is that is anybody ever been taken down by 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 good character? Now you could be executed because of your good character in a corrupt environment, right? Mm-hmm. But to the Stoics, that's not being taken down. You're you're being uh, you're leaving the world was going to happen anyway. If you happen to leave the world because of the vice of a tyrant, that hasn't made you a worse person. That's made the tyrant a worse person in having done that. So it was this unalloyed good. And they they sort of look around the world. What is it that was it is good in every possible circumstance? Virtue. Okay, let's focus on that. And it, it, these guys were not unworldly. They weren't otherworldly. They were like, I want to make you strong. Virtue, strength, prow, uh, prowess, power. I want to make you guys strong. They, they were all saying, not weakly chasing the wrong things. I want you to chase the right things so that no matter what the circumstances are, you've got the tools, you've mm-hmm. got the weapons, you've got what you need. Oh, I see. So it's not so much that good and bad isn't really understandable or not knowable. It's more as though it's sort of like uh, good and bad. If it is pure good and bad, you know, how we should conceptualize of it, it should be something that's unconditional. Yeah. All right. Oh, okay. Understood. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so now going into the actual virtue. So now we're getting into the V, the weeds, right? So people will ask, okay, but you know, isn't that pretty subjective? Like how will you actually know what is and isn't good? So again, I'll pitch this to Greg. So Greg, what are the cardinal virtues and how do we know they're such? Uh, well, the, the, the Stoics borrowed a lot of stuff from Plato, and one of the things they borrowed from Plato was this idea of the, of the cardinal virtues, yeah. wisdom and justice and, and uh, temperance and, and fortitude or, or, or courage. And the Stoics seem to have thought that absolutely all virtues can be subsumed or, or, or grouped under those, under those four virtues. Um, and and they, they had elaborate theories for each, for each category. They had, they had a their own unique definitions of what counts as, as wisdom, what counts as justice, courage, and, and temperance or self-control. They, they were always uh, taking familiar words and, and giving them slightly uh, new, new meanings. And they, they certainly do that, I think, with the, uh, with the cardinal virtues. Uh, yeah. they, they, don't over, they don't overlap exactly with what a lot of us think of those terms today. Yeah, and they... Um... So, so they. It's funny uh, the question about the subjectivity of it all. I mean, there's a sense in which all it, it, the the Stoics never want us to think. Oh, it's just a matter of opinion. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're whatever you think is a virtue is a virtue. Whatever I think is a virtue, mm-hmm. they think that there's an objective world out there. There's some objective truths. We have to work hard to get them. We're not always going to agree. Just like scientists, you know, just like people in biology and astrophysics and uh, high energy particle physics, they're going to disagree. The experts sometimes are around the edges, you know. And but uh, we're we're not going to always agree. But then they did have some fairly controversial views about virtue too. I mean, it's not controversial that courage is always a good thing, right. um, but it might be controversial to say you can't have any virtue unless you have them all. Hmm. Um, it might be contra, and that's the Stoic view. It might be controversial to say hmm. you can't have a little bit of a virtue. You can't be a little courageous. You either are or you aren't. On and off switch, people. Maybe almost everything in life is a dimmer switch is a spectrum, right, you know, right. we often think like that and, and reasonably that it's not just a dual, the world is not just simply dualistic. It's more shades of stuff. Right. Yeah. And, uh, 
but there with virtue, it's like all or nothing, buddy. You know, you can't save somebody sensibly from a stoic point of view. She's a little courageous. She's kind of honest a little bit. You know, it's like, no, you're honest or you're not. You're courageous or you're not. And so, wow. But they do think that you can make progress toward a virtue. And so when we might say, you know, geez, I've known Leon a long time and he's really been growing in courage over the years. They'd say, no, he's growing closer and closer and closer to the absolute of courage. I give you that, the Stoics would say. So it's an all or nothing thing. And that's okay. They think that most of us are not among the wise, the sagacious, the sages. Most of us are among the foolish. But some of us are making more progress than others. And we can call those others and say, come on, come on, come on, I found the path. This is a way we can make progress toward justice and prudence and, and wisdom and, and, and courage. Follow me. You know, I'm not there yet. I'm not getting better at it. I'm getting closer to it. Now, that could be a controversial view. So like the view that you can't be courageous without having all the, the rest, right? But you remember the debate, 9-11, many years ago, right? When people were talking about the guys who flew the planes into the towers, it was like there were some people who were saying, you know, these cowards. And, and other people say, what are you talking about? They were courageous. They knew they were going to their own deaths. And the Stoics would, would come along and say, no, the, well, the, look. They couldn't be courageous because to be courageous, they'd have to have all the other virtues. And they were showing none of the other virtues of right. justice and benevolence and all this kind of stuff. And so it wasn't courage. It was what Aristotle would call foolhardiness uh, or rashness or, uh, uh, you know, because Aristotle believed for every virtue, there are two extremes. There's the, like with courage, there's the extreme of too little in confronting danger. That's cowardice. There's the extreme of too much. That's carelessness and foolhardiness. And there's this midpoint that's the virtue of courage. And so we can we can look like we're being brave. The bank robber who faces down the guns of the police, God, what a brave guy. Nope, Stoics say not bravery at all, not fortitude, not courage. It's something else. Uh, it's he's been hypnotized by greed. He's been hypnotized by something else. And he doesn't, he's not aware of what he's facing because of that. He has been deceived by his vices. He has not attained a virtue. And so there are views like that that are controversial, but the Stoics want to help us think through it all in kind of a new way for most people, right? And maybe this disciplines our thought to notice stuff we wouldn't have noticed before about words that we throw around like brave or courageous or things like that. We had such a funny experience on the podcast. I think this was now in, uh, I think, 2020 when we had Massimo Piliucci on. So we had uh -huh. Massimo on, right? And we actually talked about, well, I mean, we talked about He's a lot. mentioned of, uh, a bunch. Of yeah, yeah. And, and it's cool that you guys obviously mentioned him too. So yeah, we are talking to him. And uh, I, I thought that there was uh, like this gotcha moment with him, which was not. But it was so funny. So he's telling us about, uh, so he's telling us about virtue, right? And then so I ask him, I say something along the lines of, well, you know, okay. But if let's say good character is the only way for you to feel good about yourself and the fact that let's say most of us aren't necessarily good people, then what you're implying is that nobody can really feel good about themselves. And then I'm like, aha, I got him. Right. And he says, Oh no, you could just forgive yourself. And I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the practice of stoicism. So like you could just forgive yourself. So every night you do a journal and in the journal, you say to yourself, okay, here are the things that I did poorly. Here are the things that I could get better at. And I forgive myself for today's mistakes. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I do better. And what's so crazy is that for me, this was such a fucking mind blowing concept. I don't know why, but it affected <laughs> 
almost every thought that I had after the fact on pride. So as some people know, I write about pride, self-esteem, etc. And so the way I understood pride before was again in this very black and white way of like you have these people who are like super proud because they're highly accomplished, successful, whatever, good people even. And then there's kind of the rest of us, right? But thanks to Massimo, I realized, yeah, wow, oh my God, you can forgive yourself. So it's like when you think about pride, there's a sort of a ladder and there's like a kind of a, a stepping stone, right? And this is how my thinking became nuanced partially, I would say, insignificantly because I am. So what I realized is that, okay, so at the top of the heap are the most proud, right? These are the sages, right? Again, very few people are going to reach that. And, you know, they deserve that pride if they have it. One could argue that when you're at that point, you don't even necessarily need pride. Pride no longer even becomes important to you, sure. But then at the bottom is kind of the rest of us, right? These are the people who are constantly growing. They're getting better. They're constantly forgiving themselves, reminding themselves, hey, I'm a fallible human. And I'm like, oh my God, man, forgiving yourself. Yes, you can do that. And what's so interesting is even my, my own work as a therapist, I was like, yeah, like, why the fuck can I just tell my patients they can forgive themselves too? Like, why do they need some external forgiver? I mean, technically, at the end of the day, they're the ones carrying around all the guilt anyway. So if let's say there's some irrational person at the other end that's like, hey, I'm never going to forgive you. That's not really that important. So so it's just kind of funny how, kind of, again, you know, you think about these things and uh, again, going back into uh, the criticism of stoicism, you tend to tend to think, oh, well, this is a very Buddhist-esque, you know, uh, we can't all be Buddhas, but no, it's all very practical. The, the idea here is that you're not supposed to be, again, you could just forgive yourself. See, this is what you get on a 200th episode, you get the forgiveness rant, you know? And I think that's so good because you just captured the spirit of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, I was on this podcast months ago and somebody from Argentina said, uh, you know, meditation is a terrible name. What do you think a better title would be for Marcus Aurelius's book? And I typed into the chat column, um, quote, How I Try Not to Be Such an Asshole by Marcus Aurelius. And the thing is, he's always aggravated himself and he's always forgiven himself. I mean, all through the meditations, that's Marcus's approach to stoicism. It's like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that again. I forgive myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to get better. And so it's that cycle of monitoring, self-judging, forgiving, doing it better with a little bit more awareness, self-awareness of what tempts you into the, into the stuff that you have to forgive yourself for, right? And so you're not as vulnerable to that stuff as you used to be, but it's a process. So every day you say, it's like, Marcus, give yourself a break, man. But he's going through that process all the time. And that's what I love about him as a stoic, right? He's not this stone-faced, I'm a perfect dude, and you guys have a lot of work to do. It's like, let me show you how I have to do my own work. It's what I call the wisdom work that we all need to do in a world where we're working on everything else. We're doing all the external work you could possibly imagine. The work we're ignoring is the wisdom work. And that's what some of the Stoics, especially Stoics like Marcus, he shows us how he does it. You know, we get to peek into how this goes on. And like you're saying, Leon, it's not a matter of you're not perfect. You're a jerk. You need to be perfect. It's like, here's a process. We all need to be going through this process of practice and ultimately maybe mastery, but it's got to go from theory to practice. And that's where it all, that's where it all lives in this world, you know?
Yeah. And now touching on Marcus Aurelius, who I would argue is my favorite Stoic. Uh, so how was it that I'm going to pitch this question to you, Greg, especially since you're more of the historian. So how was Marcus Aurelius, somebody who with an inordinate amount of power, I mean, in the history of the world, he probably, if we're talking about the most powerful people in the world, he's he's up there, right? Yeah. You know, he, he was the leader of the Roman Empire. So how was this person able to, you know, considered to be one of the few good emperors of the, of the Roman Empire? So how was this person able to manage power and again, uh, not be drunk with power, but how was he able to balance power with wisdom, justice, and humility, because oftentimes these things seem to be in direct conflict with one another. Well, uh, if you remember, he, he begins the meditations by uh, a kind of exercise of, of gratitude. He, he, he thanks all of the people in his life that have made such a positive influence on him, including many of his, uh, many of his former uh, teachers, philosophy mm -hmm. instructors, rhetoric instructors, and so forth. Uh, and he, he, he tells us uh, in, in, in detail uh, all, all of the, the helpful life lessons that uh, he, he's learned from these, these great teachers. And uh, I, I think that they, they sunk really deep into him. Yeah. And so he, he, he really tried to live an upright, uh, stoic life amidst all the, the, the pomp and all the, the luxury and all the, all, the, all the power that surrounded him. And it, I think it's pretty pretty remarkable. He's he's uh, one of the the few exceptions, I think, to uh, the 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 old saying that uh, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, he had absolute power, but it didn't corrupt him. Yeah, I mean that's it, it is remarkable, right? I mean, in the Tao Te Ching, you've got this great statement I've always loved: "The ocean is the greatest of all bodies of water." because it's lower than all the rest. They empty themselves into it. I mean, when you when you really reflect on that statement, the ocean is the greatest of all bodies of water because it's lower than all the rest. They empty themselves into it. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's this combination of qualities that we think of as opposites. Nobility. Mm -hmm. The ocean is the greatest. Nobility, because it's lower than all the rest. Humility. Mm -hmm. There's this balance between nobility and humility that you hardly ever see in human life, and especially in positions of power. And Marcus is this guy who seems to balance these two things. You know, there's this Hasidic saying, every person should wear a garment with two pockets. And one pocket should be a note which says, I am but dust and ashes. Mm -hmm. In the other pocket, there should be a note that says, for me, the world was created. Wow. wow. I was sent that little note by Norman Lear once years ago. And he said, isn't that terrific? Love, Norman. And I thought, what does that even mean? I am but dust and ashes. For me, the world's created. And I had to struggle for a couple minutes. And I said, whoa, whoa. I am but dust and ashes. Humility. For me, the world was created nobility. That's the match. That's the Tao Te Ching match. That's the Hasidic match. That is universal. And Marcus lived it. He's got the thankfulness, the gratitude that shows his humility. He he was he worked with the Senate like almost no emperor did. Uh, he was respecting these guys in the in the Roman Senate rather than just telling them what to do. And and he had this nobility where he's seeking for the very greatest virtues and to embody those in everything he does. It's like, wow. And it worked, it worked golden age of Rome. Right? So if more of our CEOs, if more of our political leaders of the present could get them, could get the memo, you know, Hey guys, nobility and humility. I'm not sure you're coming close to either of those most mm -hmm. of the time. Let's get them in balance and see the power that results. Yeah. And then again, going back to Greg, I mean, I just want to get into now a little bit of the details on the life of Marcus Aurelius. I mean, he had a lot of tragedy. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those pivotal moments? And again, how's he used some of the philosophy to overcome them? 
Uh, you're right. Uh, his 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 reign in, in a way was kind of one disaster after another. He had personal disasters. Uh, he had at least 14 children. 13 of them are named in our in our sources, uh, but only five were still alive uh, when Marcus died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had all of those personal tragedies. His, his wife died young, at the age of uh, 45. Um, he he dealt with with plagues and famines and civil wars and insurrections, constant invasions. Uh, he he was not himself a uh, a lover of war by any means. He hated war, and yet he spent uh, he spent uh, most of his reign uh, on the, the northern frontiers of, of the Roman Empire, uh, trying to fight off these uh, invasions. Uh, that, that's a uh, that, that's something that's really impressive. That uh, through all of this uh, adver- adversity, he was still able to uh, to to remain the the, the 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 good and the outstanding person that he was. Right, and even the meditations weren't necessarily uh, meant for for public consumption, which was really amazing. You have this book that's considered to be one of the greatest in the world, and I mean, it was literally just meant to be a diary. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's it's really extraordinary. Um, when when you think about it and for people who say well i don't have time for philosophy yeah i don't have time for this wisdom work business so oh what you're like the emperor of rome right i mean talk about a guy who's busy you know i mean here he's he's got every adversity known to man is being heaped on his head and what does he say the obstacle is the way you know it's like wow you know that's an attitude, man. I, I, you know, and 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 he's got these great images. Um, and and Seneca. I mean, uh, the the Roman Stoics give us these great images. Like, dude, you're being prepared for an amazing, an amazing uh, uh, contest. It's like if you were going to be an Olympic wrestler, you wanted to win a, a the gold as an Olympic wrestler. What would you do? You'd hire the best coach you could, and what would that coach do? He would put against you the toughest hardest, strongest adversaries he could find to make you stronger. And every day you'd be knocked to the mat, right? You'd, you'd, you'd find, feel your teeth rattle under the fist of your opponent in training. And so this it would be all to make you stronger. Well, what's going on in the world? You're being thrown adversities. You're being thrown challenges for a much greater contest than the Olympics, right? This is about your soul. So don't don't regret and flee from all these challenges. Welcome them. Say, look, the adversity is making me stronger. The obstacle can be the way. I mean, here's Marcus with every obstacle in the world taking that can-do attitude. It's like, whoa, man, thank you for your example as well as your words. Absolutely. And actually, there's a, there's a quote uh, that always comes to mind whenever I think of Marcus. Um, no man steps in the same river twice for he is not the same man and it is not the same river. What do you, what do you think he, uh, meant by that? And how could it serve, uh, people maybe reading this book or just people generally interested in stoicism? Take it, Greg. Uh, well, that's actually a quote. That's a, that's a quote from Heraclitus, Heraclitus? uh, who lived, lived a couple hundred years before, or actually, uh, 600 and 700 years before Marcus. And Heraclitus is quoted uh, at multiple places in the meditations. It seemed like uh, Heraclitus was a major influence on, on Marcus. But uh, it's the whole idea of impermanence. Mm. Uh, everything is constantly changing. 
even what seems uh, so so solid and unchanging is in fact uh, always changing sometimes in in slow and imperceptible ways but still always always changing and marcus uses this this thought uh, as a way of kind of detaching himself uh, to, to, from 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 the world and from things in the world that can entice him and and and, and throw him off his his course uh, he, 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 he he has quotes about uh, things having a kind of smoke light or misty kind of quality you know mm -hmm. and, and that too is it's motivated by this desire not to become overly attached to to things in the world mm -hmm. uh, uh, Greg would you agree with this this is like a thought I had when at least when I read the quote uh, I'm thinking ah uh, well if wherever I am I'm not the same as I was before however I might perceive myself and then um, that river in the quote, uh, it's not the same river, meaning like, uh, reality is in flux. The change is the only constant changes is, is unchanging essentially. Right. Uh, like, like it says in the book, then, uh, if let's say I were to think about what that means, maybe how I feel about it is, uh, I'm imagining, ah, uh, that means that my preconceptions of the setting that I'm dealing with or the arena that I'm in, um, aren't going to be reliable like i shouldn't hold on to the illusion that i know exactly what's going on here i know the lay of the land or mm -hmm. i know who or what i'm dealing with being aware of that change makes me more sort of adaptable um with with the ever-changing situation like uh, maybe i think uh uh i can predict what's going to happen because i've i've done something similar before like let's say I don't know. Now I'm thinking of uh, Bruce Lee for some reason, uh, Jeet Kune Do, right? Like if you ever have a plan for how to deal with um, somebody in a fight, like it's, you're going to use, you're going to punch like this. If they come at you like that, you're going to do this. If they do that, it's not reliable. Cause what if they do something unpredictable? And, mm -hmm. and that's what I think about that. That change is the, always uh, like a constant, like you can't always predict what's going to happen. So it sort of makes you more useful and adaptable. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, I think that's 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 very true. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, the the Stoics believe that that uh, sort of sort of like some of the existentialists, they they believe that anybody can change radically uh, at, at any given moment because they we fully control our thoughts. Uh, yeah. We we can become as virtuous and as good as as, as we want at, at at any moment. You know, we're 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 not we're not bound by our past. Our, our personality isn't something frozen and, and, and static. Uh, people can surprise you. They, they, they can change and they can change radically. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And so, all right, guys, so this is something that we have not covered every time we've covered stoicism. And I would argue that this is going to be the heavyweight <laughs> portion of this podcast. So wow. this is going to be a little bit more complex, but I think this is going to probably be, at least for me, you know, uh, personally speaking, this is going to be the most, the most fascinating part. So we have never in all of the times that we've covered stoicism, we've covered stoicism and philosophy. Uh, we've covered uh, stoicism and I guess emotions. We've covered uh, stoicism, I guess, yeah, stoicism and psychology. By the way, I have no idea where he's going with it. I know. So this is awesome. <laughs> this is, I'm trying to build up 
up to it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to build up to it. So what the you were one- just talking about, Alan, what you were just talking about, we're Bruce Lee. We have no idea what he's going to throw at us. Oh, right? there you go. I know. Talk about adapting, man. Oh, this is not us stepping into the same river twice. That's for sure. Okay. So this is going to be stoicism and religion. So I want to read a great passage from the book and then I'll ask the question. Okay. So Tom and Greg wrote, since Stoics believe that God is everything and everything is God, they embrace the form of pantheism. Pantheists are monoists or cosmic holists who believe that only one substance exists and that that and that that substance is divine. What may appear to be individual substances, for example, a rose or a dog, are really just parts or modifications of the one reality, parts of God's body, so to speak. This is very different from classical theism, which views God as a transcendent being distinct from the physical universe he has created. Like the God of, and this is where it gets complicated. So like the God of classical theism, the Logos is not just an impersonal force or energy field, like the force in the Star Wars movies. It is a person or or at least person-like in the sense of having consciousness, self-awareness, sentience, rationality, moral awareness, the ability to act and make plans, and so forth. Also, like the God of classical theism, the Logos is caring, provident, and perfect in wisdom, goodness, and happiness, though perhaps not all powerful in the way the Judeo-Christian God is thought to be. It seems unlikely for for example, that the logos could cause things to exist or cease to be simply by willing it, or as the Judeo-Christian God is conceived as being able to do. Okay, so I want to first pitch this to Greg. So for us, you know, we tend to think of God as a personal force, at least somebody that has some say in our lives. That's why we obviously pray. Uh, we might sort of appeal to him in another way or her, whomever. Uh, but for the Stoics, it seems like God is something of an in-between. It's sort of like a being that's out there caring for us, but then sort of kind of not. Right. And again, this is where it gets complicated. And I would argue, uh, I, I don't know enough to say for sure, but I think this is why most modern Stoic texts don't necessarily cover this, because I don't think it's something that people can easily grasp. So, OK, yeah, first the question goes to Greg. So what is God in Stoicism, number one? And number two is why should it matter to us? Uh, yeah, that, that, that is a great question. They're, they're getting into very deep waters there. Uh, and, and the Stoics actually uh, sometimes disagreed among themselves again. On the whole, on the whole question of uh, of God, Epictetus, for example, has many, many passages where he he speaks in very, very personal, almost theistic terms about about God, uh, and other other Stoics, uh, you know, use more more impersonal language. But the, the Stoics actually were d- didn't use the the term God in in a single consistent sense. In, in one sense, God is everything. Uh, God God is the whole the whole tamale. You know, he's he's uh, He's, 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 the, he's the entire entire universe, but uh, they also spoke of God as being a kind of uh, force or presence or spirit within the universe. They they used uh, the Greek term pneuma, mm-hmm. thinking of, of God then as as a kind of uh, uh, invisible, fiery uh, presence that's uh, interfused throughout the entire cosmos. It, it's what they call the active principle. In nature, there's 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 matter, which is which is a passive thing, and then there's there's God who is infused in matter, uh, and is is the is is the soul or the mind within within human beings, and so that's kind of sense number two. So God is everything. God is kind of spirit within everything. That's sense number two, and then and then sometimes they speak of. Um, uh, kind of lesser lesser gods or lesser divinities. For example, the Stoics believe that every every star is a is a god, is a is a divine being. The the sun and the moon are are gods. They they have minds, 
uh, within them. So there, that's part of the confusion there. It's, it's, it's not a, a simple yes or no answer. The Stoics uh, use the term God in, in different senses, and sometimes it's not altogether clear from the text what sense they're using. And then yeah, the second part would be, how would that be important to human beings? Because often, again, when we think of Stoicism, we don't think of divinity. Yeah, um, especially modern Stoics. I think many modern Stoics kind of want to uh, take take the religious element out of Stoicism entirely. I think modern Stoicism appeals to to many people with kind of secular secular leanings, and that, that that's fine. But it's also important to to understand that that the that ancient Stoicism uh, was was very much a a, a religious kind of of philosophy, and it really underlies uh, a lot of Stoic teachings. For example, we talked earlier about radical acceptance; that comes straight out of their straight out of their religion. You know, we should mm -hmm. we should gratefully and cheerfully accept whatever happens to us, simply because that's the will of God. Mm -hmm. according yeah, yeah. God, according to the will of God. Uh, so that, that that that's just one example of how uh, a, a lot of a lot of uh, core Stoic teachings. Really, uh, really depend directly or indirectly upon certain certain religious assumptions. And you know, for all those people who say, "Oh, yeah, those assumptions are kind of pre-scientific." I mean, look how long ago. It's like they might as well be Neolithic. You know, it's not for us in the modern world. I would say, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute." Um, there was a British physicist named uh, 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 James Jeans, Sir James Jeans, who many decades ago. Uh, in one of his books said, the more I think about the universe, the more it comes to seem to me less like a big machine and more like one gigantic thought. Okay, so we got this historical history of the warfare between science and religion. Famous president of Cornell University wrote a two-volume set on, on that, the religion and science fighting. But, but at the end of the day, we come to modern uh, quantum mechanics and modern high energy particle physics and this solid stuff that we thought is real, you know, the table, the chair, the, the house I'm in, uh, solid stuff, that's what exists, right? But no, you look down into it, there's some stuff at the foundation of that solid stuff that doesn't seem solid at all, and it doesn't seem mechanistic at all, and it seems like, whoa, what is this stuff? And so when you see the Stoics talking about the logos pervading all the universe or something, you say, well, that's weird stuff. Well, think about artificial intelligence. You got server farms in various places, you got the hardware, you got the software, and what? Is this is there an emergent intelligence? Is that even possible that dwells in the software, that dwells in the hardware? Well, maybe you got a metaphor for the logos in the universe, you know? I mean, there are modern advances that make it not look so pre-scientific and superstitious and all that to, for us to say, ah, baby with the bathwater, I'm not listening to the Stoics anymore if they had views like that, if I don't happen to be a religious person, you know, which, like Greg said, some of the modern Stoics aren't. Um, I've been a philosopher to business for a long time. And when I go into a convention center or auditorium with a thousand people or 5,000 people or 10,000 people, and I know I'm talking to Christians and Muslims and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and Baptists and all kinds of people in that room. Um, so I try to avoid some of the contentious metaphysics and ontology that might lie behind some of the views I'm going to present. And I try to go for the more practical side of things. Because so many Stoic techniques, so many Stoic perspectives 
can work beautifully to help you live a better life, regardless of what you think about the logos. And yet there's going to come a point where you need to think about the logos. You need to think about what lies behind all this, because how far can you really go with acceptance? How radical can you really be about embracing and what to embrace and what to release? If you have a metaphysical backdrop that makes total love of everything that happened make sense, uh, that's one thing. Otherwise, you're just going to follow them maybe a good deal down the path, but you're going to find a place to pull back. And even in my earlier book, The Stoic Art of Living, as well as in Stoicism for Dummies, Greg and I are often saying, look, whether you follow these guys the whole way or whether you thank them and part company at a certain point, you know, you can benefit from the Stoics. Yeah, I use the end of the movie Thelma and Louise a couple of points in, in the book uh, where these two women drive their car off the side of a cliff, right? Sometimes the Stoics will have a great idea and then they'll drive it off the cliff. They, they take it to an extreme, right? And so I want to say, thanks for the idea, but I don't have to drive it off the cliff with you guys, you know? So uh, I want to go far down that path, but not all the way. And some of what Greg was saying about these metaphysical commitments, these ontological commitments, these religious commitments, will determine how you take it. Because you can be, for example, a Jew or a Christian, for example, and still not go with the, I'm going to love everything that happens, because you don't believe in what modern philosophers call the doctrine of meticulous providence, that the, if there's a God, it's necessarily the case that God does or approves everything that happens. You don't have to believe that to be a theist, right? So you can still think there are regrettable things in the world that shouldn't be accepted. I'm going to work against world hunger because I don't love world hunger. I'm going to work against oppression around the world because guess what? I don't love the oppression of human beings by other human beings. And I don't think the logos thinks that's a great thing either. And so I'm going to work against this stuff. So you don't have to go to the most farthest extreme of radical acceptance to get the point and, and, and to be a little more accepting in your life and to loosen your hold on certain things while you tighten your embrace of other things. And just again, going back to the historical perspective here. So, and then for Greg, do you feel like, or do you think that the Stoics have a conception of an afterlife? And is there a judgmental God here as there would be in the Judeo-Christian tr tradition? Again, the Stoics uh, sometimes disagreed there. The, some some flat out denied that there was any kind of afterlife. The, the, a great uh, middle Stoic thinker named Panaitius, Panaitius who they took that view, but the, the, the kind of official or orthodox view was that uh, even though uh, the human soul on the Stoic view is material, mm -hmm. uh, just like everything, they, they were strict materialists about everything, uh, still it has, a, it has the ability to, to leave the body. When, when the body dies, uh, the, the soul, which is a, a kind of a, an invisible thing that pervades the body, mm -hmm. uh, contracts into a sphere and kind of floats like a balloon up into the stratosphere, so to speak, up to the, uh, the fiery realm of the stars, which is kind of its, its home. Um, that's, that's where the human soul originated, up in the, the realm of the stars. And it can go, it can go up there. And, and the Stoics, uh, I think quite rightly, were, were sort of agnostic about what, what happens to the soul once it leaves the body. They, they didn't tell any detailed stories about, uh -huh. you know, communing with the gods or communing with the friends or heroes of uh, the Greek world or whatever. Um, they, they, they did, they did believe apparently that uh, uh, 
some souls would uh, would die, would eventually just kind of dissipate. Uh, Chrysippus, one of the great uh, Stoic thinkers, said that uh, only only souls of sages actually uh, can survive long term. Uh, for, for most of us, you know, uh, fools, they, they they call people who are not sages. Uh, their soul is going to dissipate, and we don't know how long it's going to it's going to survive. But uh, it, it's going to eventually dissipate and kind of just return to the elements out of which it was formed. Yeah. Talk about my generation. We're going to fade away, right? <laughs> the old song. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like us asking, what do the existentialists think about X? You know, Sartre says one thing, Camus says something else, uh, Kierkegaard, the father of it all, have a third opinion. and there, But there is a cluster of views, right? And Greg had to talk when we were writing the book. I mean, we dug deep into all this stuff. And when we were writing the book, Greg had to pull me off the ledge a couple of times about, about things like I wanted... I found seeds of a longer term view of uh, life after death. If you were to posit certain things like your soul is a spark of the logos mm -hmm. and they believed in the cyclical uh, destruction of the universe, this fiery cataclysm, you know, maybe every few billion years, there's going to be there, 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 there's the big bang, then there's going to be the big shrink and there's going to be the big bang again. And it's like, Oh, really? They're cosmologists now are saying stuff like that. And, and so, but the, but the logos survives it all. And I'm thinking if the logos is, if you, your soul is a, is a part of the logos, a spark of the logos, which is one of the variety of classic stoic views, well, then you could survive those cataclysms too and stuff. And, so, and, and I was going to argue for a really robust view of, uh, of afterlife in one of our chapters. And Greg was kept pulling me, pulling me, saying, you can't really find anybody saying that, Tom. I said, yeah, you're sure. right. So that's the way our partnership worked was, you, you guys could tell. I get excited about stuff, right? And so and, and so Greg, who, who who really knew the text so well, he was just like, you got to come off the off that ledge, Tom, about the afterlife. And and he talked me into it. And that was why our our partnership was so good in writing this book, because I'm a conceptual guy who just want to take I want to take the ball and run with it conceptually with something I get excited about. And he he told me early on, he geeks out on the history of things. Right. And so he was always saying, yeah, yeah, but the, here's what this one says. And here's what that one says. It's like, OK, OK, I get it. Um, but I'd never co-authored a book with anybody before. I'd never wanted to. It it never occurred. To, I want to be whole in my past history of writing 30 books, I wanted to be wholly responsible for everything in that book, right or wrong. I, I want to take the blame or I want to take the whatever the credit. Uh, it's me. It's here's what I, I, I wish a banner could be across every book that says at the bottom, every one of my books, I could be wrong, you know, on, on a banner. Right. But when they asked me to do this book, the, the dummies people approached me and asked me to do this book. And I thought, well, I, I don't have time to do this by myself. And all of a sudden my great friend, Greg came to mind and I, I emailed to Greg. I said, Hey, you have any interest in Stoics? And he wrote me back. He said, I keep leaving. I can't believe you're asking me this. I've been doing a deep dive into Stoicism. I just decided to write my own book about Stoic virtue. And yeah, let's do it together. And so it was like the thing I had never wanted to do to co author a book ended up being a beautiful, wonderful, productive thing. And you don't see a lot of the books on Stoicism co authored. To have a co author, and, and especially where both of you are trained philosophers mm -hmm. and, and you've been subjected to the ultimate in logical rigor of examine, examining arguments and all that, for the two of us to team up, um, 
we could dig out some new stuff that hasn't been in the literature in the last 20 years. We could dig out some new perspectives. We could dig out some new criticisms, some new uh, uh, praises, some new, just some new stuff. And we both said from the very outset, we don't want to do this, just rehash what, uh, you know, 12 other people have written about stoicism. And like you guys said, you've done so many shows on stoicism. There's just so many times you can talk about the stoic dichotomy, the stoic fork, and right. yes, things we can uh, control and things we can't control. Okay, you've said it, you said it. We said we're not going to waste our time unless we can dig out some innovative features and aspects and stuff, whether it's on love and friendship, whether it's on life after death, whether it's on happiness, we wanted to say things in the book that no other book on stoicism have ever said. And it's our partnership that made that possible. Yeah, yeah. And I would argue that it's kind of a misnomer that it's called uh, Stoicism for Dummies just because of the breadth and the scope of the, the yeah, all of the topics that you guys end up covering. And so even just the fact that religion was touched upon, again, by the way, so uh, I mean, technically, I'm nowhere near an expert, but in the books and the sort of podcasts that I've read, you know, touched on uh, in terms of Stoicism, I've never, ever heard religion talked about. And honestly, from reading Massimo's work, which is pretty much my main, uh, where I get, you know, my he's my main source material for Stoicism. I actually just assumed that they were all atheists. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I was like, I guess this is kind of it, right? They're materialists. They doesn't seem like they believe in much of an afterlife. Again, self-forgiveness. It doesn't seem like there's a God judging you. You're the only one at the end of the day who's doing it. So yeah, my understanding of it has completely shifted just by, you know, the book, by the conversation with you guys. So again, there's so much here and it just, it's not for dummies. This book, I would argue is for everybody. And there's so much, there's so much here, especially for people who already knew about stoicism and want to learn more about it. Okay. Yeah. As we wrap up, Alan, final questions for Tom and Greg before we go. Super quick before I ask the usual thing I ask, uh, I do have to say, uh, having read the book, I love the way that it's structured. Like oh, for me, it depends, you know, like sometimes you, you read a book and let's say you look at even the way the page is formatted. You could see like, you know, it's like, oh, it's a really small text and it looks like there's a million pages or something. And then you kind of feels unpleasant to read. Mm -hmm. I have the complete opposite feeling with this, the way that it just, uh, it's written, uh, the way it's like just so easy to understand stoicism for me. I feel like this is like one of the best books on stoicism that I've read in a long time. I think of it like up there with like uh, obstacle is the way, for example, or like for some reason, Ryan holiday comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, but this is, this is like, and let's even give some uh, shout out to Massimo with how to be a stoic. Cause that's also technically, yeah. oh, fair, I, mean, I didn't read it, but yeah. 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 Let I mean, those guys I come did. to mind. Let those guys come to mind. So in the next printing, it has to say over a million copies in print across the top, you know, let those guys come to mind. That's great. That's right. And so uh, what I wanted to ask both of you, I guess I'll start one at a time. Uh, Tom, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where, where can we do that? Oh, uh, come to my website, Tom V, as in Victor, what the Stoics were always after, right? To be a victor over your circumstances, uh, TomVMorris.com. And just go to the uh, heading at the top books, and uh, there'll be a clickable thing there. There'll be some stuff about the, the book. And I, I feel people people go to the contact page all the time and ask me questions, and I love to hear those questions, and I will answer the questions. So, yeah, I would love to keep the conversation going because, really, that's what philosophy is, right? You guys in your podcast, you represent this so beautifully that the history of philosophy is this amazing conversation across space and time, and we're doing it in new ways now, but it's the same conversation. So come to TomFeeMars.com and let's keep talking. Absolutely. And and Gregory, if you wanted to follow you and follow your work, uh, how can we do that? Yeah, I, I don't have a website. Maybe I'll need to create one uh, you know, for, for, for the book. But uh, mm -hmm. people can still contact me through my, my university at, at, at King's College. They can email any questions, comments, 
thoughts, yeah. reflections to, to me there. Uh, so Gregory Basham at kings.edu. Yeah, and, and he's on out. social media. The man is on social media and posts some good stuff. So find Greg on social media too. Yeah, it, it's it's a great thing to follow. Oh, just his name, right? Yeah, it's my name. Uh, yeah, yeah, and oh, also awesome. huge shout out to William Irwin, who's a, another friend of the podcast from Kids Kids College too. So we couldn't end this without giving him a shout out. Okay, both of you, so thank you so much for coming this on. This was man. amazing. This was the per thank you Number the perfect yeah. the perfect episode for two hundred man. So thank you guys again so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank okay. you, guys. Thank I you. wish we could do fun. this every day. You guys are real sages, I, and I'll fight anybody who says otherwise. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. We'll see you for number five, man. All right, man. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye.